Well, good morning again. This morning, we're going to start what will be a long journey through the book of Mark. It should take us the better part of a year. Uh, Don't worry, we're going to step outside of that uh, every once in a while on occasion to give us a little bit of breather and a little bit of variety in our diet. But for the most part, this is where you can expect to spend most of our time together on Sunday mornings is in the book of Mark. Hopefully it's not quite as challenging as Judges was for us, but uh, gives us just as much encouragement and helps point us to Jesus. Let me give you some quick information about the book that will be helpful during our study together. Mark is widely believed to be the first gospel written, and it's the first of the four. They're Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And it's believed that Mark is the earliest, and it's also by far the shortest, which is good. And you guys are like, it's going to take a year to get through the shortest gospel? Oh, no. Uh, but but we'll get through it. We'll work through it. The book is actually very fast-paced. You're going to see the word immediately showing up again and again and again. It's like he doesn't know any other like word. He uses it as a conjunction almost, as, as like a comma. Immediately Jesus goes here. Immediately he goes there. And Jesus is also going to be referred to as a teacher quite often. But it's funny, Mark calls him a teacher, but seldom reports much much of his teaching. Which, which makes it apparent that the whole gospel is more concerned with the person of Jesus than the content of his teaching. Mark is going to be more concerned with the person of Jesus rather than the content of his teaching. Mark here sets up a highlight reel of sorts for us. If you've ever watched Sports Center in the morning when you wake up, that's kind of part of my routine. They give you just the highlights of the game, right? They don't show you everything. And that's a little bit of what Mark does here, uh, especially because the majority of Mark is concerned with just that last week of Jesus's life. And so he's taking this highlight reel and he's going to move from event to event with the goal of demonstrating to us that Jesus is the authoritative, miracle-working Son of God. Maybe if the sports center analogy doesn't work for you, you can think of it like a mosaic if you're the artsy type. Or uh, if you're just girly, um, maybe, I don't know, collages, I think, girly. Maybe that's not. I mean, when I, when I was growing up, they had the Lisa Frank stickers. Uh, you might not know. They're like rainbow horses and unicorns that they had all on their binders. And then they'd have pictures of them and their friends in between. And so you could just, like, pick up their notebook and get a picture of their life. Oh, this is their family. And, and this is kind of, you know, they're into, you know, cheerleading, whatever. I don't know. And Lisa Frank stickers, because those are there. And so you can have a picture of what what they want you to see. It's just a snippet. It's not all the details. It's events. And that's what Mark has done here. He's concerned with moments. He's concerned with events. He wants us to look at the pictures of Jesus's life to get the big picture of Jesus's person. The fact that Jesus is the authoritative miracle working son of God. And that's the the one big thing this morning, what I want you to walk away contemplating and thinking about is the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. Hopefully I can help show you that's what Mark's intent is this morning as we work through the first eight verses together. My agenda this morning is going to be to answer three questions. Who is Mark? Who is Jesus? And who is John? Who is Mark? Who is Jesus? And who is John? Before we get into all that, though, would you pray together with me? Lord Jesus, we need your help this morning. We need your help to listen well. We need your help to convict us of sin. We need your kindness to lead us to repentance. 
we need your help for the preaching to be to be done well and with excellence, Lord. We ask that you would um, let words that are from me fall short and uh, not be heard, but that which is from you to uh, echo in our minds throughout the week. Father, help us to be willing to be changed by your Holy Spirit during this time together. Father, help us to cherish your word, to treasure it, to treasure Christ. Lord, give us childlike faith this morning. Help us to hear and believe the gospel. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's answer our first question before we get into the text. Who is Mark? Well, Mark's the book's author, right? The, the, the book is titled Mark uh, in our English Bibles, anyhow. Uh, it, it, traditionally, the letter's just written. It doesn't have a title to it. It just kind of starts uh, in the beginning. And it doesn't actually say, hey, this is Mark. We've, we've titled it that after its author. In fact, the early church agreed unanimously on Mark's authorship of the book. He's actually not a prominent character in Scripture. Not one of the twelve not with Jesus a whole lot, but we do see him in a few places. He and Barnabas accompany Paul on his first missionary journey in Acts. He leaves the journey early, which ends up causing a little bit of a rift between Paul and Barnabas. Uh, Paul eventually, though, I guess they reconcile and he turn, comes around to Mark and he sends for him in 2 Timothy. He says, send me Mark. He's useful to my ministry. Uh, there's a there's a young man that uh, runs away naked. He's a kind of a naked streaker in, in the book of Mark. And some think that that's Mark himself kind of putting himself in the book. And then uh, most importantly, uh, what we know of Mark is that he's the secretary or interpreter of Peter. Now, Peter, you know, he's the one that does some really good things and then some really foolish things throughout the gospel, right? He's the one that walks on water and then tries to tell Jesus what to do after confessing him as the son of God. Right? Peter is one that's very prominent. He's one that's with Jesus all the time. And so this is who Mark is hanging out with. And this is the account that Mark has organized as Peter's eyewitness testimony. And that's kind of how this account gets its apostolic authority. It's why it's in our Bible and it's why we can trust it as the word of God. Mark is simply writing down Peter's experience as he's carried along by the Holy Spirit. And Mark has organized his material in a very specific way to the end of demonstrating that Jesus is the Son of God. And so that brings us to verse 1 of chapter 1, where he makes an audacious claim. He's not going to beat around the bush. He's just going to come right out and say what he has to say. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, the first word here is beginning, actually. There's not an article in the Greek. It's beginning, and it's beginning on purpose in order to point us back to Genesis and the creation account, which also starts with beginning. Mark here is pointing us to the initial creation to demonstrate that God is beginning a new creation. The word choice is intentional. And for Mark, the introduction of Jesus is no less momentous than the creation of the world. For in Jesus, a new creation is at hand. There is a new beginning going on here. Right out of the gate, we know that this Jesus is a big deal. But, and this is our second question, we are left asking at this point, who is Jesus? And Mark has asserted that he is the Christ, the Son of God. 
That's the question that's behind every pericope, every sentence, and every word of Mark. It's his primary concern. He's going to provide us eventually with an answer of who is Jesus from the lips of a Roman soldier in chapter 15, verse 39, when that soldier says, truly, this man was the son of God. Mark wants to prove to us that Jesus is the son of God. We should note that Christ here, when he says that Jesus, he says Jesus Christ, he's kind of saying Jesus is the Christ. Christ is not Jesus's last name. Uh, That came as a shock to me at at one point in my life, and maybe it has shocked you now. Christ isn't his last name. There there wasn't like uh, James Christ and Paul Christ and Daddy Christ. It was, Christ is a title. And and it simply means, it's it's a name, a title applied to him, meaning an anointed royal figure. It's just another way of referring to the Messiah, the one who would come and administer God's rule and reign on the earth, the one that would rescue Israel from all its oppressors and all of its troubles. Mark is saying that this is not just a king, but the king, the Christ. And he's saying more than that. The title Son of God carries a lot of weight. It makes this news that Mark is proclaiming, because that's what gospel means, good news. It makes this good news that Mark is proclaiming even more dangerous, even more audacious. It's borderline blasphemous among Jews. To call Jesus the Son of God went beyond the typical understanding of the Messiah and is a claim to outright divinity. Mark is saying that Jesus is not only the one to deliver Israel from her oppression and from her trouble, but he is God himself, God in the flesh. Mark is so concerned with us hearing this claim that he doesn't spare a moment, right? We talked about he jumped right in. He doesn't do a genealogy. He doesn't go back to the beginning of creation like John does in his gospel. He doesn't give us a birth narrative of John the Baptist. He doesn't tell us about the virgin birth. There's no heart the herald angels sing. There's no joy to the world. There's no wise men. Just right out Mark saying Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Son of God. That's what he wants us to get. And it's the point, I think, at the the beginning of Mark's gospel also points us to the end of his gospel. And we've talked about reading well before. To understand an author's intent, we have to kind of have the whole picture of the whole story in order to see how all the pictures, all the pieces fit together. And we know the end of this story. We know the end of Jesus' story, right? Most of us do here. Jesus lives a perfect life in our place. He dies a perfect death in our place. And he rises from the dead, confirming his identity as the conquering Messiah King, confirming his identity as the Son of God. So Mark's going to prove his point in his gospel. So if this is true, if Mark's assertion is true, and if you're a Christian, you believe that it is, what does it mean for you, for all of life? If this story is true, it means that only Jesus' life can make sense of our lives. And I think that's why so many seek to discredit Jesus. They object to his claims of divinity and dismiss him as simply a a good teacher, right? You've heard that assertion before. I'm not sure about following Jesus or uh, of Jesus as God. Really, I think he was just a good teacher. He has some good things to say, and so I can respect him on that level. The funny thing is, is Jesus doesn't give us that option when it comes to his person and his work. I love what C.S. Lewis has written on the subject in his book, Mere Christianity. He writes this. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. Quote, 
I'm ready to accept him as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says that he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or else something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit him out and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He's not left that option open to us, and he did not intend to. People make these assertions because they know that if the Gospels are true, then Jesus has claims on the lives of every man, claims on their own lives. So some have also sought to say that these Gospels are unreliable. They argue that the Gospels are legends written down long after Jesus' life by church leaders who were trying to consolidate their power and and build movements. I think claims such as these really fail at the end of the day to hold any water. And we can trust what the Bible says about Jesus, uh, that it's historically reliable for a great many reasons. And here I'll just point out three uh, arguments against some of those claims. So the New Testament accounts of Jesus were written far too early to be legends. I mean, the people that walked around with Jesus and saw him crucified and then saw him post-resurrection are still alive when this account is written. And so if it's a fake, if it's just a legend, you know, people that are there are going to go, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's not right. I was there. I saw the crucifixion happen. He's dead. I've been to the tomb. There's a body in there. You can come with me and see it. So it's not, you know, that what you're writing isn't true. The New Testament documents are penned while eyewitnesses are still alive. Christianity never would have had any success if its critical historical claims were bluntly contradicted by the numerous witnesses that were still alive. Secondly, the New Testament documents are far too detailed in their form to be legend. Ancient fiction is nothing like modern fiction. This is, you know, this was hard for me to accept at first, but ancient fiction, if you've ever read it, doesn't have a whole lot of details in it. It's not like some of the fiction you read today. It's like, and then she combed her hair and and looked in the mirror and and X, Y, and Z. There's all kinds of details. Ancient fiction does not work this way. And so the fact that the Gospels include details in them, such as Jesus asleep on the cushion during the storm, such as how many fish the disciples bring in, is actually a, a big mark in the column for their validity of being eyewitness testimony because the details would have been retained in the memory of those that had witnessed the events. And so it's too detailed in its form to be a legend. The New Testament documents are also, this is the third one, too counterproductive in their content to be legends. The failures of the disciples, the original witnesses of the resurrection being women, Jesus asking that the cup being taken from him, if possible, are all things that probably would not have been included in documents that were supposed to consolidate power and build a movement. They're too counterproductive. After all, you want the hero of your stories to probably never show weakness. You want Peter who leads the church probably to not deny the God that he professes, right? So some of these things are probably going to be taken out. So we've said that they're too detailed in their form to be legend. They're too counterproductive in their content to be legend. And they're written too early to be legend. 
Anne Rice, author of the popular book Interview with a Vampire, was one person who was startled to discover how weak the case for a merely human historical Jesus actually is. Rice was raised a Roman Catholic and lost her faith at a secular college. She then married an atheist and became wealthy writing novels about a vampire rock star. Shocked the literary and media world when she announced that she had returned to Christianity. Why did she do it? In the afterword to her novel, Christ the Lord, out of Egypt, she explained that she had begun doing extensive research about the so-called historical Jesus by reading the works of Jesus scholars at the most respected academic institutions. Their main thesis was that the biblical documents we have are not historically reliable. She was amazed at how weak their arguments were. She wrote, Some books were no more than assumptions piled on assumptions. Conclusions were reached on the basis of little or no data at all. The whole case for the non-divine Jesus who stumbled into Jerusalem and somehow got crucified, that whole picture which had floated around the liberal circles I frequented as an atheist for 30 years, that case was not made. Not only was it not made, I discovered that in this field was some of the worst and most biased scholarship I had ever read. The point here is that the weight of the historical, biblical, and extra-biblical evidence points us to this fact. Jesus rose from the dead. It actually happened. There are even theories that try to explain away the resurrection, and some of them are quite comical, and I'm giving you the most cogent of them, remember. This is probably the most popular. It's called the swoon theory, and it insists that Jesus didn't really die, that on the cross he just passed out, and then once he was placed in the tomb, a cool wind blew across his body, and he revived. And upon reviving, he rolled the stone away himself and walked the many miles that he needed to walk to engage his disciples, claiming to have resurrected. And that's pretty ridiculous, right? You have to take a lot of faith to believe that one. Roman soldiers misdiagnose death. I mean, they're trained killers. That's what they do. And then Jesus resuscitates and just is all good. He's able to get around. He's able to push a rock out of the way. He just appears unharmed. It's pretty far-fetched. Another theory claims that Jesus had a twin who was in hiding until after Jesus died, and then the twin presented himself as the resurrected Lord. A third theory suggests that everyone who saw Jesus, including the 500 people that Paul mentions Jesus appears to at one time, that all the people were just hallucinating together. I mean, wouldn't it have just been simpler to go to the tomb? If you're the Roman Empire and Christianity's causing so much of a problem, and say, here's the body, still in there. That that simply would have disproved Christianity. Christianity stands or falls with the resurrection of Jesus. And the evidence suggests that it stands. The evidence suggests that the tomb is empty and that the throne in heaven is occupied. If you're interested in this, N.T. Wright has written an extensive book called Simply the Resurrection of the Son of God. The Resurrection of the Son of God by N.T. Wright, if you're more interested, wherein he lays out uh, historical and extra-biblical evidence that helps prove that Jesus rose from the dead is the most viable explanation considering all the facts. point here that I'm trying to make is that the story of Jesus' life is true. And it's the only way that you can make sense of your own life. Jesus' claims demand a response. And so the application here, I guess, 
is to hear this claim and to believe. To hear that Jesus is the Son of God and to believe it. Friends, Jesus offers to you this morning fellowship with himself, the God of the universe. He died in your place and offers you his perfect righteousness. You need only take hold of this offer. He offers himself to you not because of anything good in you, but because it is his good pleasure. All men and all women are unworthy of his love, yet he has set his love on us. For it is by grace that we are saved, not by works. This is good news. This is the gospel. This is the Son of God. This is the Messiah King. This is Jesus. And so we arrive at verse 2. Where Mark begins bolstering his argument by pointing out that God has indeed kept his word. He's kept his promises. And he starts to answer our third question. Who is John? Who is John? Verse 2. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Verses 2 through 3 are actually a tapestry of Old Testament quotes. They're from Malachi 3, Exodus 23, and Isaiah 40. Mark simply references the most significant and well-known of the prophets. His agenda here is to remind the reader that God has promised to send his messenger ahead of the Messiah. You see, John the Baptist, though, will not just be the forerunner of the Messiah. Because in pre-Christian Jewish text preserved in the Old Testament and in intertestimonial literature, Elijah prefigures not the coming of the Messiah, but the appearance of God himself. This fact considerably elevates the importance of this quotation. Further, the pronouns in the quotation uh, apply to God himself and the way for the Lord. They all refer to God. Mark, however, is applying these texts with reference to Jesus, which indicates that John the Baptist is not simply the herald of the Messiah, but the herald of God himself appearing in Jesus of Nazareth. John is the divinely ordained precursor of Jesus, and Jesus is the manifestation of God who will fulfill all the law and all the prophets. John will prepare his way. Verse 4, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now don't, don't get it twisted here. Uh, John is not only weird and odd by our cultural standards, he's pretty weird and odd by his own cultural standards, all right? It's not normal for a guy to go out into the wilderness and live like John was living. I mean, the guy is wearing camel's hair as his clothing and has this weird leather belt going on and he eats bugs with honey. I did learn, though, from one commentator that, uh, although offensive to some of our modern tastes, that the eating of locusts falls inside of Jewish dietary regulations. 
and provides a high source of protein and minerals. And so if any of you are out there doing CrossFit or working out hard, maybe get some locusts if you can. High source of protein. It'll help, help you with your gains. It's all about those gains, you know. So, um, you know, work, work hard, get some locusts, maybe some bugs. You can be like John the Baptist there. The clothes are important here, though. I don't know, maybe his diet's important too. I, I didn't find that. But I found his clothes to be most important because they're meant to reflect to us the same type of clothing that the prophet Elijah wore. It's to identify John with Elijah and with the wilderness. See, the wilderness throughout Scripture has uh, this motif to it. It's this place where we see Israel repent. Thus, it's a place where we see God's grace to his people. We see God's grace here too. In the wilderness. John is challenging the people to quit their sinful lives and turn towards righteous living. That's all repentance is. It's turning from one direction and going another. John is preparing the way of the Lord as he proclaims the forgiveness of sins for those that repent of and confess their sins. Those that do this will receive the inward baptism that John's outward baptism symbolizes. They'll receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. John is a faithful minister to the people. In fact, John, Jesus says of John in John's gospel, it's a different John, it's a little confusing, but in John's gospel, in chapter 3, verse 30, um, I'm sorry, back up, in Matthew, Jesus says of John that there has never been anyone greater born of a woman. And that's in Matthew eleven eleven. And so John is obviously a character worth emulating in some respects. Maybe not dress or diet, right? But there are some really good things about John that I think we can learn from. I do think if we would live our lives more like John the Baptist, we would end up looking a lot more like Jesus. Two things. First, like John, we should be fearless and fearful. Like John, we should be fearless and fearful. I say that John is fearless in the sense that he is obviously not concerned with being in the in crowd. He's not concerned with dressing up and fitting in. He's not concerned with pleasing anybody but God. That's why I say he's fearless. He's committed to the Lord. But I also say that he's fearful. And what I mean by that is that he fears rightly. Been reading through Proverbs recently, and I came across this one, which I really enjoyed. Uh, chapter 19, verse 23, it says this The fear of the Lord satisfies. Fear, Lord, satisfies. Psalm 147, verse 11 tells us that the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, those who hope in his steadfast love. John does not look to anything or anyone other than the Lord for his satisfaction. And thus his hope is not in people or in possessions, but in God, in his steadfast love. And because the gospel is true, John's odd lifestyle. It makes sense. Who cares if he is a little bit weird? Who cares if he is an outcast? The gospel is true. And he is validated. Likewise, because the gospel is true, our lives make sense. We were created to worship God. And it's in the gospel that we find ourselves, our identity. We find our niche, that very thing which we were created to do. Worship the true God of the universe. And as we grow in our affection for him, we're able to drink of that fountain. 
that leaves us never thirsting, that leaves us resting content in Christ. Jesus' life shows us that we do not need to fear men or to look to anything but to him for our acceptance and our satisfaction. The cross shows us that while we were so bad that God had to die for us, at the same time we're so loved that Jesus did die for us. When we repent of our sins and confess Jesus as Lord, we get to have fellowship with him. This, he tells us, will never be taken from us because we will never be snatched from his hand. Therefore, we have nothing to fear because Jesus is truly our hope, truly our joy, truly our treasure, and he cannot be taken from us. Secondly, like John, we should be humble and point to Jesus. John lives a pretty humble life. He had a humble diet a humble appearance, a humble home. He lived in a desert and a humble message. His message was of repentance and of forgiveness. And he pointed directly to the one that is powerful enough to accomplish that forgiveness. His whole ministry, his whole life was essentially to say, don't look at me, look at Jesus. It's not about me. It's about Jesus. Do wonder how much our church would change and grow if we had John's attitude. Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 30, John the Baptist says of Jesus, He must become greater, I must become less. He must increase, I must decrease. I think that's the Christian life in a nutshell. Jesus must become greater and we must become smaller. The essence of sin, after all, is self-centeredness. Let me press in here a little bit. What would happen in our church if we all said, Jesus must become greater, I must become less? What would happen in our church if we all said, I'm not worried about my own interests, but the interests of others? What would happen in our church if we did nothing from envy or from rivalry or from conceit or from comparison? If we did nothing out of a desire for our sinful, selfish ambition? And considered everybody else in the room more significant than ourselves. What would happen if we set our hearts on setting Jesus fully before the lost and the saved alike. To show them his fullness and his power to save. How encouraged we might be. How we might reach the lost and the dying. What would happen if we resolved to say to ourselves, my life is not about me. My church is not about me. My life is about serving others. The church is about Jesus. What would happen? Men and women would flock to our church as they flock to John in the wilderness. Jesus will build his church with men and women that have his mind and humble themselves in obedience to his will. He's going to build his church. The question is, do you want to be a part of that? Jesus is only going to reach the lost here if we as a church humble ourselves like John. Get over our fear of rejection, over our insecurities, over our idols, over ourselves, and resolve to proclaim his gospel. 
That is, if we tell others, the friends that we've had here for years, 20, 30, 40 years, the neighbors that we've had for days, it's only if we tell them that Jesus is the Son of God and that the tomb is empty and that the throne is occupied. And that's what Mark wrote his book to do, to tell the world the good news of the gospel, that God took on flesh and became a man, lived a perfect life on our behalf, died a perfect death on our behalf, in our place, and rose from the dead so that we might likewise rise and have fellowship with him forever. When we, by faith, repent of our sin and follow him. Friends, this morning we've answered the questions. Who is Mark? Who is Jesus? And who is John? The question I'm going to leave you with this morning is this. Who are you? A follower of Jesus? Or a follower of self? Who are you?